You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. Magic that is not real magic affects us because it mirrors our existence. We know that what we see isn't as it seems, but we want it to be and want to understand it. We want to be fooled and then want to know how we were fooled. We cannot prevent our minds from trying to figure out how the trick was done. I believe this is more than just intellectual curiosity. We strive for immortality in the face of its impossibility. But magicians are clever. They understand that a magic trick is all about turning illusion into substance in such a way that we never fully comprehend what happened or what we think happened. They know that a trick loses its power once we understand how it was done and that it also loses its power once we no longer wish to understand how it was done. There are four elements to this grand tug-of-war between substance and illusion. There is effect, there is method, there is misdirection, and finally, when it's all over, there is reconstruction. Magic is a dance between these four elements. The actor playing a magician seeks to choreograph a way through the trick with these component parts. If he does so, he will have achieved magic. If not, he is a failure. Stephen Galloway is the author of Finney Walsh, Ascension, and The Cellist of Sarajevo. His new book is The Confabulist. Thank you for joining me, Stephen. Thank you, Rick. Stephen, maybe you better explain to our listeners just what a confabulist and what confabulation is. Sure. Well, as, as I see it, um, confabulation is a story that is not, strictly speaking, entirely true, but there is not an element of active deception in the untruth. You know, the way we all have family stories um, that maybe over time grow and, and extra details are added and things are funnier than they maybe were or sadder than they were. And, you know, it's not like Great Aunt Shirley is lying to you or anything. It's just that the story has, like a snowball rolling down a hill, acquired a mass that maybe is not entirely its own. And by sort of definition, a confabulist is someone who does that. This book is a wonderful and interesting examination of memory and loss and the way we experience our lives as a story. And that's one of the things that interested me most. So talk about the import of story in putting this together and in choosing your main characters, Martin Strauss and Harry Houdini. Right. Well, I kind of think about being alive as, as this, you know, there are two component pieces to me as a human being. There, there is the of the moment sort of sensory inputs that are happening. You know, we're sitting here talking and, and I hear your voice and I'm thinking about it. And sort of so the, the present tense stuff. And then there's the past tense stuff, which is everything that's ever happened to me that I remember, um, which you sort of carry around as a, as a almost bouncing board off what is happening now. The question of the book and sort of the question of Martin Strauss and Harry Houdini is, does it matter if that past tense um, bouncing board is factually accurate or not? I had an experience some number of years ago in my early 30s where I had a, a very fond childhood memory of my great uncle Johnny, who, according to family lore, was famous for being an excellent dresser and an excellent checkers player. And I remember being maybe five or six years old and sitting in my backyard at the picnic table and great uncle Johnny coming, wearing a three-piece suit with a fedora and taking off his jacket and his, and his hat and rolling up his shirt sleeves and letting, him, letting me beat him at checkers. And I remember as a child understanding that he had let me win, but this intense feeling of pride that, wow, you could have just obliterated me here and you let me win to make me feel good. And that kind of I remember it, partly the feeling of, of goodness, but also the realization that not all adults were scary and mean. Because, you know, when you're a little kid in the 70s where, you know, children were sent to the basement during, you know, for me, adults were scary and mean for the most part. And 
this is where I sort of started to think, all right, maybe you should differentiate between adults. The problem with this is I discovered in my mid-30s that um, Uncle Johnny died the year before I was born. So that never happened. And the, the sort of the question of the book, I think, and the question Martin is asking and Houdini in, a, in another way is asking is, does that matter? Does it matter if the things that you remember are factually accurate or is it more important what the story says to you about the world that you are inhabiting in the present? Well, this is so interesting because for me, one of the great aspects of reading a, a book like this is if you get immersed enough in the characters, in the narrative, in the story, your memories of reading the book can be somewhat equivalent to memories of things that have actually happened to you. Oh, yeah. And so this book also, to a sense, it explores what it is to read. Absolutely. Uh, I have this problem all the time where I'm trying to remember who who this thing happened to. You know, someone at a party is telling a story and you think, oh, yeah, that reminds me of who did that? And then you realize, oh, that was that was from a book I read. I don't actually know anyone who this happened to. I was just about to recount a story of something that happened to my friend that I read in a, in a Robertson Davies novel. Nuts. But you're right in that this is how books work. If if you get someone to read a book and at the end of the book say what happened in the book, they're under undergoing sort of the same mental processes as a you know a magician is using. And the important one for a writer is reconstruction. When you're writing a book, you're not asking the reader to remember every single thing that happened in a book. At the end of it, if I say if I say, "Hey Rick, what happened in my book?" You're not going to start by reciting the first line and re, you know from memory read me the book back. You're going to tell me about 10 or 15 things that you remember, things that stood out in your mind that that sort of you have put there and that in your reconstruction of the book come back. And that that is analogous to I think how our whole memory and lives work. I mean, reading a book and having a memory is not that different. This book begins introducing us to Martin Strauss. He has a condition that I too experience, tinnitus. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I think that's an interesting way to introduce a character because of this kind of background noise. And one of the things about tinnitus is, is it can be very annoying until you just forget you have it. Yeah. I don't thankfully suffer from this myself, but a, a colleague at work um, does, and he, he talks to me about it all the time. And yeah, that's exactly what he says. If Once you notice it, it becomes a problem. But if you're busy and doing something else, it sort of just fades into the background. With with Martin, his is, his is, not, is more of a... It becomes almost a canary in a coal mine for him where it acts up when when it needs to, to sort of it's a silent moment kind of thing, yeah. And he's also suffering from memory problems as well. Mm -hmm. And I, I like this idea of a character who's going to tell you what he remembers, but he, he knows he doesn't remember. So yeah. talk about creating a, a character who is, I think, in many ways, the, the paragon of the unreliable narrator. Yeah, well, you know, there's different kinds of unreliable narrators. There's unreliable narrators who are deliberately being unreliable, you know, who are actively telling you a story and and withholding information from you. I mean, all narrators are in a sense unreliable, even if they're not lying to you in that they're crafting a story. In Martin's case, he never he never lies to us. He tells us the truth as he thinks it's to be. The problem is his own memories are are suspect and flawed. And he knows that, and he doesn't know what is factually accurate and and what is not. In a sense, I do believe he is telling us a true story because the impulses behind all his memories, um, if you say take his stories as parables as, as opposed to literal things that happen, there is a truth there. Um, but he himself isn't necessarily aware of what is factually true and what is not. Early on, we meet our main character, Harry Houdini, mm. uh, and he's such a, a, a wonderful uh, man as you've created him on the page. And this must have been a challenge for you, 
he wrote quite a bit himself. He's been written about a lot. There are lots of movies. He gets put in as ancillary characters in just about anybody who feels like uh, stirring up some kind of magic realism. Talk about the challenges of writing about a man who's been quite well documented. Yeah. Uh, it was both a challenge and also a blessing. I mean, the challenge is that when someone is in sort of the public imagination, there's a bunch of facts out there that people think are the truth. And then when you write something that is not that fact, they sort of, they can get rankled. Um, regardless of whether that fact is actually true, I recently got a letter from a man chewing me out for saying that Harry Houdini died in Detroit in an interview because everyone knows he died in Montreal. But no, he actually didn't. He was punched in Montreal and he died in Detroit. But, you know, this is just an example. Like if I'd made up a fictional magician, I could have killed him anywhere and I wouldn't have got a single, dear Mr. Galloway, do you even do research, you talentless hack kind of letter? But the flip side of that is that, you know, as you say, so much has been written about Harry Houdini. You know, there's comic books where he's fighting Nazis in World War II, despite the fact that he died in 1926, that there is almost a, there is a collective imagination that you can trade on. You know, when I say Harry Houdini, everyone gets a picture. They know what he looks like already. I don't ever have to describe him in the book. And you can also, you can almost use that little bit of pop culture energy to your advantage, I think, particularly with a guy like Houdini, who is a made-up character anyway. Now, one of the things that I found really interesting for me as I read this book in, in an opening scene where he's doing a spirit reading, which isn't something he was known for. At, in fact, he was, later was against that. Mm -hmm. But as he does this, he, the way he speaks really reminded me of another uh, character, uh, a fictional character who is arguably the greatest fictional, single greatest fictional character of the 19th century, which would be Sherlock Holmes. Mm. And uh, that, I thought that was really interesting, that how, that, how reminiscent he was of that character. Uh, he was an enormous Sherlock Holmes fan. Um, I think one of the things Houdini never really was able to fully wrap his head around, and frankly, I have the same trouble, was how... Sir Arthur Conan Doyle, who created this, you know, the ultimate rationalist could be the world's most fervent spiritualist, how these things are compatible. And, you know, when, when Houdini eventually pursued a friendship with Conan Doyle, he was shocked at the level of contempt Conan Doyle had for Sherlock Holmes and for people who liked Sherlock Holmes. He considered them idiots. You know, he, he made fun of people who wrote him fan letters. And at the same time, he was getting his advice from beyond the grave. It's it's very bizarre. But no, Houdini, I think, was crafting himself as almost a Sherlock Holmes kind of character. You used a great phrase right there. Houdini was crafting himself. And I think that's one of the most interesting aspects of this book is we see a man who was born Eric Weiss who is creating a character for himself to be. And I couldn't help but think of, uh, I think it's Kurt Vonnegut, Mother Night. Be careful what you pretend to be, for that is what you shall become. Yes, and I think uh, that is exactly what happened to Harry Houdini. I think there's a point in the book where Bess says to him, you've created this man and you've become him, and I don't think you even remember what parts of him are a figment and what parts are real. I'm paraphrasing myself because I know there are authors out there who can quote their own work and I am sadly not one of them. But the essence of it is she's saying, yeah, you've you made up Harry Houdini and you've played him for so long that you no longer know what you made up. And I think we all risk that. One of the things that's most interesting are the relationships that you create between Houdini and the people in his life, particularly, I think, his mother. And what's nice is, is that Harry Houdini truly, deeply, intensely loved his mother, but in a way that wasn't weird. And, and you managed to po portray that and pull that off. Yeah, I think there's two, in my opinion, big things about Houdini that have been misunderstood. Uh, one is a lot of people view him as an occult figure, right? They think he was into the seances and all that sort of stuff, which is just not the case. But the other was that he had this weird creepy, overly devoted 
infantilized relationship with his mother. And I, I think that has been overblown. I think, I think for him, his mother was sort of the last link to Eric Weiss and that he understood that and he understood that Harry Houdini wasn't Celia Weiss's son or Cecilia Weiss's son. And her death, I think, hit him really, really hard, partly, you know, just the way any son is affected by their mother's death, but also because that was the end of Eric Weiss for him. One of the things this book involves a lot of history, a lot of stuff that's true, a lot of stuff that sounds true, <laughs> a lot of stuff that maybe probably isn't, mm -hmm. uh, where you hit the truth turns to fiction button. You do this very subtly and very well. Uh, talk about just understanding the facts of Houdini's life and then finding the cracks in the facts into which you are going to fit your fiction. Yeah, well, one of the sort of I guess, rules of writing a book where you're asking it to be realist fiction is, is in invoking suspension of disbelief to say to the reader, all right, you and I both know it says a novel, so it didn't really happen, but you're going to treat it like it did, is, is knowing what is believable and what isn't, right? The, the, this is a problem a lot of fiction writers run into is thinking that just because something is actually factually accurate you can put it in a book and people will believe it. It that's not the case, you know. Um, Stephen Colbert's concept of truthiness is more important to fiction writers than the actual truth. If, it doesn't matter if something's real or not. It's that's indefensible in a book. Having said that, this is a book where I kind of, at a certain point, wanted to start to poke a bit at suspension of disbelief. So, a lot of the facts of Houdini's life there'd be a kernel of, of something there that you'd find and then sort of try to riff on it and push it as far as I could get it without actually making someone so mad that they're like, I can't believe this anymore. I'm not reading this book anymore, which is a tricky line to know because as the writer, I'm often not in a very good position to gauge that. <laughs> I, I love this, uh, you know, the vision of Houdini that we get at the very beginning where he conducts a, a spiritist reading and is just racked with guilt about it. And this kind of gets to, you have a very interesting perception of magic and its effects on, on humans, whether it's real or imagined. So I'd like you to talk about, first, about why Harry Houdini would feel bad giving a spiritist reading. Right. Well, it almost comes back again to the notion of suspension of disbelief in a magic show, a proper magic show where, you know, where you go to a theater and there's a magician and all that sort of thing. The magician does not claim to have actual supernatural powers, generally speaking. Um, they may kind of not say they don't, but there's a, there's a tension there where you go to a magic show and you see someone do something that feels impossible, right? You look at it and you're like, wow, how did he do that? That is not possible. And so on one hand, you know, well, the, the, the answer isn't the man's a wizard. He has actual supernatural powers. But on other hand, the other hand, you also kind of want that to be true. But there's an element of consent there, right? Where you agreed to go into a magic show and you agreed to know what's going on. The issue Harry Houdini had with the spiritualist reading, in this case, in this particular instance, he's talking to the parents of a dead child saying, you know, here's what your child said from beyond the grave. He knew what he was doing was not actually, you know, there, there's an element of deception there, but they hadn't consented to being deceived. They, they, they were interacting this with this as though it was true, which is, you know, the difference between fiction and nonfiction is in fiction, the, the reader has consented to be lied to, and in nonfiction, they have not, as, you know, every nonfiction writer who's ever got in trouble has realized, oh, wow, people actually take this really seriously. Um, suspension of disbelief is a switch. You either have it or you don't. And Houdini was operating in that seance as though he had it, and he didn't, and seeing what he did to these people... I think really shook him. 
Now, Houdini got his start picking locks, working for a locksmith. Mm-hmm. Was that? Uh, or so he says. So he says? Yeah. Oh, okay. One of the big problems with Houdini is here's a man who is writing his journals and diaries with a full awareness that they would be read after his death and used to, re- to reconstruct his myth, right? You know, it's really hard to trust Houdini. But according to him, yes, he was apprenticed to a locksmith in Appleton, Wisconsin at the age of 12, which is where he learned everything he knew about locks. Let's say it's true. <laughs> There's no real way to know. So he had uh, James Frey beat by about 100 Oh, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> that truth turns the fiction button is yep. not a new technology. It is not. No. Well, I mean, Robinson Crusoe was originally published as nonfiction. You know, what's generally thought to be the first novel in, in sort of modern existence was published as nonfiction. And then when no one believed it, they're like, okay, uh, there's this thing called the novel. <laughs> <So>. <laughs> I made it all up. Uh, or maybe I just made that up. <laughs> <laughs> but this gets me to something I found really interesting about this book. And it's kind of in the background. It's a subtext of the fascination of technology because what all magic tricks, the kind of elaborate stage acts we see turn on, is some kind of really incredibly smart technology. Hmm. And as one of your characters points out, I mean, cell phones and TVs, boy, you show those to somebody 200 years ago, they'd say, you're a wizard, no doubt about it. So talk about the import of technology in magic. I mean, just understanding the technology of the locks made him appear to have magic powers. Yeah, and uh, some of the cleverest people of sort of the late 1800s and early 1900s were the guys in the shops inventing illusions for 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 magicians you know the 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 simplicity of the technology and it's one of those areas where technology had to be foolproof right if you're on stage as a magician and your illusion screws up you're done and so i think some really in, incredible advancements in technology were made through magic, uh, one of the one of the great examples from a Jim Steinmeier book called Hiding the Elephant is just this idea of what angled glass can do. And it started in the early part of the 1800s as um, an illusion where they could have people below below a stage, below the audience where the audience could see, and you have a piece of angled glass that would, at a certain angle, reflect what was below it. Um, and so it would look, it was called Pepper's Ghost, and it would, they could make a ghost look like it came up. And that, that technology is, you know, you, when you see the president with those teleprompters that are just pieces of glass and you can see through them, but he can see his speech on them, it's the exact same technology 180 years later being utilized. Um, and it blew people's minds in London, and we just take it for granted. Houdini, one of his main uh, magic tricks was he knew how to be a rock star long before anybody invented an electric guitar. Yeah. I mean, Houdini wasn't, strictly speaking, the best magician out there. What he was was a promotional genius. All of the things we remember him for, if you close your eyes and think of Harry Houdini, you think of him hanging upside down from a hook in a straitjacket outside some building in some city or jumping off a bridge in handcuffs or being thrown into some body of water in a crate. He didn't get a dime for any of these things. These were all the promotional stunts for his theater shows. Uh, What he figured out sort of in advance of everyone is, I can pay money to advertise my my show in the newspaper on page, you know, 38, and it will cost me a fortune, or for free, I can get on the front page. And he he figured that out before anyone else really knew how to do it. And that's that more than his skill as a magician is why he he, he became famous. Not that he was a bad magician, but... Well, one of the things, too, I think that I, I found so interesting was the way he um, got into this uh, got this idea of doing the prison escapes, which yeah. led him to a, a second career. So talk a little bit about his prison escapes. Well, I mean, one of, yeah, I think it, it started off as just a great promotional 
thing. You go you go into town, any town, and you challenge the local police. And, you know, this is sort of part of his overall, I guess, iconography was challenging authority, right? One of the reasons people loved Houdini's escapes is because it was metaphoric for them. If he could break out of a prison cell, then maybe I can break out of this crappy life I have working in a factory for 16 hours a day, you know? But yeah, it 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 sort of it morphed into a, an incredible skill set that that other people wanted to avail themselves of. Um, now, one of the things too, we were talking a little bit earlier about his stage presence. Um, uh, Houdini also was one of the first people in the world to really be world famous. Uh, yeah. from, and and that's an interesting invention in and of itself. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yeah, I think, you know, he benefited from the changing world in, in that. I don't, I don't know if it was possible to be world famous the way he was in 1850. Um, I think in, in the lead up to World War I and then after World War I, it was more possible to do that, you know, with, with just the way the world worked. But yeah, he, I mean, he... He became famous for being Houdini. To this day, the, the the word Houdini gets more Google hits than the prime minister of the country I'm from. And yeah, I'd, I'm not sure that he even he fully intended for this to happen. You know, I don't think he he or I think there was a lot of luck there. One of the things you do is you do a a bit of confabulation yourself in this novel, and I think <laughs> that. Uh, the the title of this book, The Confabulist, uh, might actually refer to you. It may well. Um, <laughs> I, I think it, there's a there's a a trinity. It refers to me. It refers to Martin Strauss. It refers to Harry Houdini, and to a to a point, it it refers to the reader. One of the things that I think, whenever I read the the death of the novel article, which you know, what do you read about every three months? The yeah. the novel's dead, and someone has a new often entirely credible reason why it is, I, I think, well, no, it's not. Because the one thing that books do that other art forms don't is the reader uses the book as a template to have their own imaginative experience. And, you know, if I could rip out of your head what you experienced reading the book, it would be different from another reader's. You know, everyone brings a bit of themselves into the experience of recreating the words on the paper into an imaginative experience. And one thing I have observed having written a number of books and talked to people who have read them is they make up stuff in books that aren't actually in there. You know, readers add things to books that are, are of themselves. They add scenes, they add interpretations that, you know, if you actually look at the, the words aren't there or valid, um, but that's kind of part of the great thing about a book. And you don't get that from a film. Um, when you watch a screen, you and I see the exact same thing. We may vary in our interpretation, but we're not actively involved in the creation of the imaginative experience. Or a play is the same. Not to denigrate these art forms. They do something entirely different than than what a book does. And only a book works in this way where... As the part, as the reader, you're actively involved in the recreation of the work. Now, Houdini, as he was creating himself, he was unaware that this uh, role of a guy who could escape from prisons, travel around the world, and get access to kings, queens, and all sorts of places in foreign countries, that that skill set might resemble skill sets of other people in other occupations. <laughs> so yep. talk about that. How much of that did you pull out of uh, the your research? Well, this is this is a point of some contention among sort of Houdini fans and or scholars. The the head of the US Treasury Department and then Secret Service after McKinley's assassination was a man named um, John Wilkie who was an amateur magician and former newspaper writer who who's credited with sort of popularizing the Indian rope trick, which is this amazing magic trick, which people will swear they have seen, but he entirely made up. 
Um, <laughs> it's sort of become an apocryphal. People should Google it if they're interested. It's been a, an apocryphal magic trick. And Houdini's name appears in Wilkie's journal a bunch of times. It also appears in William Melville, who was Wilkie's counterpart in, in England with, with Scotland Yard and later the MI6, in his journals. And at the very least, Houdini was supplying intelligence to the Allies about the layout of German and Russian prisons. At the most, he was an active intelligence operative who was going to these places on purpose. If you think about it, like Houdini did tours of Germany and Europe in you know, the years leading up to World War One, he could have probably made more money sticking to England and the US. You know, there there's there is some evidence to support the notion that he was an active spy. And in fact, one of the reasons he was getting access to these police stations to to break out of them was that the, the government was saying to the police, let him do it. If you're writing a novel, then you take that little nugget of truth and you think, yes, of course he was a spy. If you're writing a nonfiction book, you have to say, well, here's the evidence. But on the other hand, so I, I think it's a fascinating nugget of, of, of information. And I, I chose to run with it. Talk about architecting the story. This seems like something that you might must have had to like really a big board with a lot of stickies. <laughs> I had a big board with, yeah. I like I like old windows. I get old windows from from I guess demolition sales and whatnot, and then I bolt them to my wall because you can write on them like whiteboards, but when you stare at them, it's not white. And then when you're done, they erase. You know how whiteboards? If you leave something on a whiteboard long enough, you try to erase it, and it's it's still there. Oh, and that there's nothing more irritating than trying to write a book over top of your last book. But the Houdini sections, there's four large ones. And in each case, because the book is so much about memory, what I tried to do was have a present tense moment, right? In, in the case of, say, the first section, the present tense moment is him doing this show uh, where he, he has the incident we spoke about with, with a false spiritualist reading. Um, and then with that present tense uh, moment, there's, there's some backstory to it, like memories, right? There's some stuff that he will think back to or recall that is relevant to the moment we're in. Uh, I, I'm sort of, I don't really want to call them flashbacks because they're not really necessarily flashbacks. They're more his own memories of the things that are relevant to the moment now. But there's always that present spine. I didn't want to just structure it, structure it chronologically. You know, here's the beginning and now we're just going to go straight forward because that's not how our own brains work and that's not what the book is really about. One thing we all know is that Houdini, for a man who uh, did a great job of appearing to be magical, was absolutely not magical. And in fact, he was an active debunker. Yeah. A and you mentioned in the point when he's a spiritist, he mentions that there's a whole network of people supplying information to spiritists. And mm -hmm. this is a really interesting fact. So talk about the network of spiritists and what happens when you decide to take down spiritism. Well, yeah, um, it sounds almost quaint, right? This whole idea of, of what was going on in the, in the early part of the century and then right after World War I. This, oh, I'm going to go to a seance with a darkened room and speak to a medium and they're going to connect me with my dead aunt or in England, particularly my son who died in World War I. But it was huge business. You know, people were making millions and millions of dollars in today's currency doing this. There, there, you know, there were as many as a million spiritualists in the United States uh, in the early part of the century where, you know, the population was 100 million people. It was a major movement. And Houdini realized or believed that this movement was, if not entirely false, at the very least highly populated by people who were not being genuine. Um, it, it is an absolute certainty that as vaudeville died, um, the number of mediums out there rose, and many of them were, you know, much like spies and magicians have similar skill sets, mediums and magicians have similar skill sets. And 
One of the reasons Houdini knew this is because he would recognize, oh, that medium, I remember that guy from, he, he opened for me in Poughkeepsie kind of thing. Um, and so on one hand, the, the, the spiritualist movement had a very sophisticated network of people who, you know, you'd pull into the local town and you'd pay to get information on people, right? You'd pay to know that, oh, so-and-so's uncle just died and this is what his uncle was like. To combat this, at the time of his death, Houdini had formed a, a small network, not even that small, a network of his own private investigators who would follow mediums around and go from town to town and go to the seances and essentially expose the fraudulent methods that were being used um, to the police. So there was there was kind of a clandestine war going on almost between between the two groups. And you spoke earlier about people who read things into novels that the author never intended. Let me uh, step forward here and say sure. that one of the things I really enjoyed about this book was that uh, as Houdini goes forward in this crusade, these, this network of spiritists acquire an almost like a supernatural feel. And that's, this is one of those books that never pretends it's about the supernatural, never uh, endorses it, but has the feel and the satisfaction of reading that kind of book. There's this kind of almost Lovecraftian feel of these, uh, of these nasty spiritists out there who are going to do something that's not good. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, I think... Um... I think that's part of the fun, isn't it? Of of the, you need every book needs a villain. <laughs> well, not every book, but a book like this needs a villain. And <laughs> well, they make great villains. Now they do. Uh, what could be scarier uh, than a villain who has access to voices from beyond the grave? <laughs> Especially if they're channel funneled through a megaphone. <laughs> yeah, exactly. <laughs> now, uh, I I one of the things that's uh, so nice about this book is that really has kind of a sweet and, and beautiful feel for the way you wrap up this theme of memory and love and loss and who we are and who we might be and how we invent ourselves. And I, I'd like you to just talk about architecting that. When you started the book, did you know that's where you were going to end up? Yeah. I, I, I know writers who can sort of open a Word document and just sort of start flowing words out and you know, one sentence after another, and eventually they get to an ending. I am not like that. I need to know what I'm going to say before I can write anything. Um, so I, I spend a lot of time before I even start typing anything out, thinking about what is this story actually about? Like, what do I want to have happen? Um, what are we dealing with thematically? And for me, you know, all the Houdini stuff and the memory stuff aside... This is, this is a novel about um, a man trying to explain to a younger woman why she had no father um, and what that means to her and what that meant to him. So, yeah, I knew that from the very start. Uh, one, you uh, explain the workings of quite a bit of uh, magical apparatus in here. I'd like you to just talk a little bit about your research. This sounds like a lot of fun. It was a lot of fun. Given that my previous book was um, set during the siege of Sarajevo and the research methods for that were spent, was spending time with people who lived through a three-and-a-half-year terrible, terrible war, which, you know, was an amazing experience, but not a ton of fun. For this book, I got to sit around for a year or two and read about magicians and magic tricks and how they were done. And um, basically that's all I did. It, it, people think finding out the inner workings of the world of magic is difficult to do. It's not really if you're just willing to read a lot. Uh, magicians almost always write books near the end of their careers where they say how their tricks were done. And it's not, it's not hard to figure this stuff out. But it's a lot of fun. Stephen, one of the things that you mentioned in this book is one of my favorite uh, concepts, and I haven't seen anybody else use it in the book. And so I'd like you to talk about the part that Zeno's Paradox plays in oh, this book. Yeah. <laughs> I love Zeno's Paradox. Yeah, it, me too. And it, it always kind of gives my brain a little bit of a conniption. The idea 
I guess it's it's an idea of infinity. I, it's a, a philosopher, but the idea, and there's a bunch of different ways to, to, to describe it. The idea basically goes that if, let's say I want to eat a cupcake, before I can eat the whole cupcake, I have to eat half the cupcake, which means there's half a cupcake left. And then I have to eat that half. And then I have to eat the next half. And so there's always a tiny bit left over between zero and one, right? And no matter what you do, you can't ever actually get to the whole. It's sort of the idea of the infinity being in everything. And it's called a paradox because obviously you can eat a cupcake, right? It's, I can prove mathematically that you can't eat a cupcake and I can prove mathematically that you can. Or it's, it's usually expressed in terms of distance. Before you travel from point A to point B, you have to have got halfway there. And then before you travel the next half, you get three quarters of the way. And there's always an amount left over. And I think that's an interesting metaphor because as certain as you can be about anything in the world, there's always a tiny amount left over. And that amount's incredibly valuable. Now, Houdini was married his entire life to one woman, but she wasn't the only woman in his life. I'd like you to talk about Bess and the other women in Houdini's life and researching this aspect of his life. Yeah. Houdini, Houdini was a bit of a hound, it turns out. You know, there's a couple sort of almost inarguable things on record. You know, he definitely had an affair with Jack London's wife. There are letters, and, and that's sort of a matter of historical record several starlets of the day he he was he was not a great husband on the other hand he 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 did kind of dote on bess it's a it's a very strange thing i think if 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 nothing else houdini was very good at compartmentalizing and so he 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 probably didn't think of it the way we are thinking of it right now um well, talk about creating the character of Bess. Who she's an interesting mm -hmm. presence in the book. She's there for Houdini, but she's kind of uh, restless. I, I feel. Yeah, I think she probably had many of the issues any woman of her age would have had. You know, she married Houdini when she was, I don't know, fifteen or six, maybe sixteen. She was very, very young. On one hand, she, you know, she came from an extremely poor family and then became reasonably wealthy. So leaving Houdini was not an option whatsoever in, in that time. And yet I'm not sure she really liked being married to him. And yet I think she probably loved him. It, it was a very complicated relationship they had. I think you add into that that they were unable to have children, which weighed on her. And then she had some fairly serious substance abuse issues. She's an extremely complex character. The the one thing is in the book, because we, we're we getting things from Houdini's point of view, we really only get a reflection of her as he sees her. And he is not particularly interested as a human being in seeing the world through her eyes. You know, he Houdini sees the world through his eyes, and that is all. <laughs> and... Uh, Houdini, this, uh, one of the things you also talk about is his unlikely friendship with Arthur Conan Doyle. And I, I love the way you draw Doyle and his wife in this book. I think you do a great job of that. So talk about, again, the research for that. Uh, Doyle's life is also well documented. And, and recreating in fiction what mm -hmm. happened in real life. Yeah, well, the nice thing about it is there there are many letters that have survived between the two men, and they both kept journals or diaries or whatever you want to call it, where they would, you know, talk about what happened in their meetings. I think, I think their friendship was short, but their desire to convert the other to their cause was long. I think the initial for. For each of them, the initial impulse for Conan Doyle to become friends with Houdini was he thought he had, he actually thought Houdini had magical powers and was unaware of it. You know, that, that he was explaining his ability to do amazing things away by using rationalism. And, and 
Conan Doyle was always trying to convince Houdini of his own supernatural abilities. They really felt that if they could convert him to the cause of spiritualism, that would be a huge step forward in their, in their movement. On the other hand, Houdini came as a huge fan of Sherlock Holmes and rationalism and really wanted to prove to Conan Doyle that this was all, you know, a bunch of bump. The, the two were, it's sort of, it was, it's almost like a really religious person and a really devout atheist arguing with each other in that neither is ever going to convince the other one of the truth. You know, the, it's just, that's, I don't know that that has ever happened in, in a bar or in a, in a, an acquaintance where a religious person has talked faith into a non-religious person or vice versa. It just doesn't happen that way. But boy, those two guys were dedicated to trying to to convert the other one. And then I think towards the end of it all, it it flipped into animosity. I think Houdini was really upset with Conan Doyle's attempt to deceive him in Atlantic City with, with a false seance. And um, Doyle, for his part, became very upset with Houdini continually exposing medians that Doyle had put up to the world as, here's proof of of our movement as as fraudulent there there's a letter sent very near to the end of of Conan Doyle's life where there's two ways to read it one is just oh it's been reported to me from beyond the grave that Houdini's in great danger someone's going to try to kill him i'm worried about this it would be terrible if this happened the other way is sort of in like let's pretend we're mob bosses like you know, Rick, if something were to happen to Fat Tony, wouldn't it be a shame if, if, he so. were to, if he were to end up in the bottom of the bay with some cement shoes? We wouldn't want anything like that to happen, would we? <laughs> it's, yeah, I, I think by the end, by Houdini's death, they weren't friends anymore, sadly. We, we also uh, get to take a little tour to Russia and, and where we meet a very famous uh, so-called medium. Or we don't meet him, but we see his, the, the long reach of his uh, ugly uh, intentions. And I think mm-hmm. he do a good job uh, playing with that. And uh, Houdini really did escape from the Moscow prison, didn't he? Yeah. Yeah, the, the escape from the Black Maria is one of his more famous escapes. He, he did a fairly extensive tour of, of Russia and Moscow, which is interesting in and of itself that he was able to do that because you couldn't sleep overnight as a Jew in Moscow in, in the, during the period when Houdini was there. And yet here he was not only sleeping overnight, but performing for royalty and a big deal and, and doing all this stuff. So something interesting was going on there because although... Houdini, he wasn't, it wouldn't have been much work to find out Houdini was Jewish. You know, if, if the Russians wanted to know that, they would have known it. Because uh, he, he didn't, you know, he didn't claim to be Christian in, in any literature or anything. He was reasonably open about himself. But, and then just the whole, yeah, and this was an incredibly, I guess, uh, turbulent time in Russian history. You know, the czars were very nearly gone. You know, he was there in 19... I can't remember now, early, early part of the 19th century. So things weren't, sorry, 1900s. So things weren't as bad as they were. But yeah, um, he, you know, he was there right before our, our pal Rasputin. And according to Houdini in his, in his journals, he was asked to take the job of sort of spiritual advisor to the czar that eventually went to uh, Rasputin. Who knows if this is true or not, because Houdini says a lot of stuff in his journals that that isn't supportable. But it's interesting to think, how would world history be if this Jewish magician became spiritual advisor to the Tsar of Russia and then World War I had broken out? It's it's it baffles the mind, but it's fun. It's fun to contemplate in a book. It's a, it's a lot of fun to read about. Um, and, and also, I like the spiritualists, particularly uh, the Witch of Beacon Hill. Oh, yes. Yeah. Um, she, you know, that that's a real person who existed. She and, to, you know. Um, Marjorie Crandon. Marjorie Crandon. Talk about just creating these spiritualists because they, on one hand, you know, they're uh, appealing to our belief in the next world and our 
you know, inability to prove it doesn't exist. Mm -hmm. But on the other hand, uh, there are, well, that other hand is being filled with a lot of silver that really does exist. Yeah. The sort of operative question that was always going on between even Houdini and, and Doyle was every time Houdini would, would prove that one of these mediums was, was fraudulent, Doyle would say, well, just because they were fraudulent doesn't mean all of them are. Of course, any movement is going to be filled with, with people who are not genuine. You know, um, take, I'm sure there have been throughout history many people in positions of power in the Catholic Church who maybe were less than devout deep in their hearts and were using any structure as a way to line their pockets. The question became, were they all doing that? And, and Houdini believed yes. They're always that, that, you know, Zeno's paradox, kernel of doubt, but he believed, yes, they are all fraudulent. They are all charlatans and, and Doyle the opposite way. The thing about them is they're all creepy as heck, you know, like you look at pictures of Mina Crandon and her, her husband. I think she was probably a, a victim of, of a terrible, terrible husband. She had to kind of keep this ruse up to, to do it. He, he, he was a nasty fellow. Uh, so it's, it's an interesting thing to think about the circumstances one would be in if one was a medium and you've gone down this road and this is how you're making your living. Uh, same as modern day, you know, psychics with the psychic hotlines. If you were a psychic, why would you be working a hotline? Like there's, it's sort of, I feel the same way about stockbrokers. It's like, why, if you know everything about how to make money, why am I giving, why are you talking to me? You know, go off and get rich and then don't be a stockbroker anymore. The mediums were, to me, are this are very similar. Now, uh, have you started research on another book? I haven't yet. I usually have a period of, after I finish a book of about six months where I just kind of let my brain empty um, of the last book and hope that the well fills itself back up and I'm starting to get a little twitchy again and, and maybe something's starting to materialize. But yeah, so far I, I don't really have anything on the go, which That's, is fine for now, but soon will start to make me nervous. All this materialization sounds like you're uh, reaching into the spirit world for your well, next book. <laughs> that's what writing kind of is, is reaching into the spirit world a bit. I've been speaking with Stephen Galloway. His new book is The Confabulous. Thank you for joining me, Stephen. Thank you. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.